Thank you for being here today. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. A few years ago, I had a section of grass that just nothing would grow. It was really like a hard patch, and uh, eventually I got sick of it and bought a little bag of seed and read the directions, and it said to break up the hard ground uh, and to till it up a little bit so that the soil is a little bit more receptive, to drop the seeds in, to cover it a little bit with uh, some better soil, and to put some hay over it, and it once that was sort of finished, that if you watered it and took care of it, that after a few weeks, uh, grass would start to grow. And, and sure enough, after four or five weeks, uh, you know, I was mowing that patch and it, it looked great. Well, in a lot of ways, what we're doing this morning is we're going to break apart uh, this passage, verses one through two, um, and we're going to sort of till it up a little bit, and then we're going to drop the seeds of God's truth, right? Um, and we're going to see it grow, and it's going to um, do something in your heart. And so you'll be an expert if you listen closely to First Peter's uh, chapter one, verses one through two. Uh, it's a very rich greeting, and so we're going to take a look at that uh, this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll read First Peter one, one through two. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, two hundred years from now, people will be reading this text. Uh, if the Lord tarries, that, that this will be a, a passage that will remain relevant and discussed and prayed over and talked about uh, even hundreds of years from now, as it has been for the past 2,000 years. It has found relevance in every culture where the Bible is preached. It has found uh, listening ears and prayerful hearts and people who are desiring to consider the truths of your word and apply it to their life. And so I thank you that, that we have an opportunity to participate um, in discussing and thinking about and praying through and applying this small passage to our life. And we pray that our children would do the same thing, that they would hear your word, that they would apply it to their heart, and that it would bear fruit, that it would grow up, and that it would sprout, and that it would do a work in our lives, drawing us closer to you. So give us wisdom, give us understanding, let us be like the Bereans who didn't necessarily trust everything that they heard, but as they heard it, they filtered everything through the Word, and they went back to see if the things that they were hearing were true, that if it checked out according to the Word. So I pray that you would give all the hearers of this message today discernment, that they may know the truth of your Word, and that they may be able to discern what you're saying to them. Would you use this message today for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, uh, last week we talked about the first word, Peter. Anytime you're considering a passage or a book or a Bible, uh, you always want to do basic hermeneutics, which is, um, who is the author? What's he saying to his audience? And what does that mean to them first, right? We don't ever come to the Word and say, well, this is what I think it means and what it's speaking to me about. We always come to it and we say, who is it speaking and what is he saying to his audience? And based on that little bit of work that we do there, we're able to lift the principles and apply it to our life today. Uh, and so as we come to this, it's very important that we know who Peter is. And so we spent a whole message last week just talking about a little bit about who Peter is. Uh, and in this introduction, it says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We're just going to take those things apart, uh, and we're going to shift them around a little bit and consider each of these points uh, and then find application as the Lord leads you. Uh, First thing that's really easy is uh, Peter is writing to a group of believers in a region. If you were to take those uh, five uh, points on a map and you were to look at it, it would basically be modern-day Turkey. That, uh, that whole area um, is divided into regions. You probably have a map in the back of your Bible, and if you were to flip back into that map, you would see that Peter is writing to that group of believers in this area of Turkey. Anytime these guys wrote letters like this, the apostles, they were meant to be distributed. Um, Peter lets us know in chapter 5 that he's writing from Babylon, which is code word for Rome. Uh, and so he's in Rome, and he is maybe responding to some people who are suffering, and he thinks, led by the Holy Spirit, I'll write a letter of encouragement for those who are suffering, and I'll remind them of the hope and the good things that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he pens this wonderful letter um, through Sylvanus, who is like an amanuensis. He's the guy, the secretary that's writing as Peter may be pacing in front of him, uh, writing this letter, but in some way uh, he is writing what Peter is telling him to write, and he's trying to encourage the believers in this region. And he does so in a a couple of ways. He says that you are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he's already starting in with some themes that we'll pick up along the way through the rest of Peter. One is he wants them to understand that they are equal to and a part of the chosen nation of Israel. The spiritual heritage that they have inherited for Israel, for the Old Testament, for the covenant, for the promises of God's people. He is going to show them that they are a part of that. They are not outsiders looking in. They're not Gentiles trying to fit into a Jewish world. They are now a part of the body of of Christ. And do you remember when this happened for Peter? It was Acts chapter 11. He was praying on the roof of, what's the guy's name? Simon the Tanner, right? He's on the roof, he's praying, and there's a sheet being let down from heaven. Does this ring a bell? There's all kinds of animals in it. And the Lord speaks to Peter and he says, rise, kill and eat, right? And Peter says, no way, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. Nothing unclean has ever come uh, into my mouth. And he said, uh, don't call anything unclean that the Lord has made clean. And this weird vision happened three times in a row until Cornelius sent some of his people to Simon the Tanner's house to fetch Peter. And when he did that, uh, the Spirit told Peter, hey, go with these guys. And immediately Peter understood. Matter of fact, the next day when he's in uh, Cornelius' house, he says, the Lord specifically told me not to call anything unclean that God has made clean. And so in this way, the gospel was opened up and affirmed by the Holy Spirit to Gentiles, right? Israel was a very specific group that were God's chosen people, and they weren't even supposed to eat with Gentiles. 
But now God, through His mercy and through His grace, has opened the door of salvation for us, right? We're all a bunch of Gentile dogs, right? You remember the lady that Jesus um, ministered to and she said, hey, come heal my daughter. And He said, it's not right for me to heal and to do works outside of the nation of Israel. He really said it um, in, a, in a, a more abrupt way. He said, it's not right to take the food that's for the children and to give it to the dogs, Right? You remember what the lady said? She said, well, even the dogs eat what falls off the crumbs of the kid's table. And, and, and Jesus said, wow, what a great answer. Go, your daughter will be healed. There was a very strong dividing line between Israel and the outside world summarized as Gentiles. But now, through Christ, now we are all given access. Ephesians 2 says that we all have access to God through one spirit. And this is inclusive of people who are not native, spiritual-born Israel. And so Peter, throughout his book, is going to tie them in. He's going to use code words, right? And so as you read 1 Peter this week, one of your assignments is to find code words that would have been identified with Old Testament Israel that are now being applied to New Testament Gentiles, right? I want you to come up with those phrases as you read 1 Peter. Uh, five chapters, you could read it five days this week, a chapter a day, and you'll find at least six identifiers that would show Old Testament Israel is now equated with New Testament Gentiles. Uh, so let's break down some of these phrases that we just read about. Peter first talks about to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. This is a phrase, it's the first reference from the Old Testament that these are God's people. Um, uh, And so this phrase, the dispersion, it's a Greek word, diaspora, came to represent all the scattered Jews all around the world. You think about scattering, um, in the Old Testament it wasn't a good thing, right? Do you remember the Tower of Babel? What happened, kids, at the Tower of Babel when they all came together and they all spoke one language and they all tried to build what? That's right. They didn't want to go through God's way, so they built a tower to get to heaven. That's very good, Lily. Um, What happened at the Tower of Babel? Right? What happened? That's exactly right, Gideon. He touched their language center. So that one day, they were all speaking the same language, right? And they all in sort of this united rebellion against God that said, we're going to build a tower to heaven, and we're going to do this together. And and the Lord said, they will achieve whatever they want if they're working together. And so I will confuse their language. This is the the Hebrew word babble, right? He made them babble. And so the next day, they began speaking to each other in languages that didn't, Fit. They couldn't understand each other. And what happened as a result of that condemnation, that judgment that God gave them? They were scattered, right? In the Old Testament, scattering was a bad thing. I can point out a dozen passages. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, Nehemiah 1.9 that I read to begin our service this morning. Psalm 147, Isaiah 49, Jeremiah 15, 41, John 7, James 1. Uh, all of these passages describe the scattering of God's people as a, as a means of judgment. But something happens in Acts 2 that it's a good thing. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, 
He says, wait here. And as soon as the Holy Spirit comes on you, as soon as you receive the gift, then I want you to to scatter. So the Old Testament scattering wasn't good. The dispersion wasn't good. The diaspora was a bad thing because God wanted a nation united for people to come to to hear His Word. But in the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit comes and now all believers are supposed to scatter. They're supposed to be dispersed because God wants salt and light all around the world and every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There should be an example of biblical Christianity for every people group. And so our command is not necessarily to gather, but to gather and then scatter. To gather and scatter. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we plant churches. This is why we go. This is why we're sent. In all these ways, the New Testament gospel is that we're scattered. And so Peter is uh, telling them that they are um, scattered. They're in the dispersion. They're, They're sent out. And this is a good thing. He calls them exiles. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But to be an exile is to be banished, maybe for political reasons or maybe for um, uh, expulsion or expatriation, deportation. In some way, when we think of an exile, it's a bad thing if somebody is sent into exile. Probably one of the more famous exiles um, in the Old Testament is Moses. Right, He's first 40 years, then he kills an Egyptian. And then the next day he goes and tries to reconcile Um, some Jewish brothers that are fighting, and they say, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And immediately Moses went into exile, right? He went way out into the wilderness, and he became a shepherd for 40 years. 40 years in exile. And so exile was not a great thing. Uh, But this idea of exile, we're going to come to in a few minutes. They weren't really exiles like the Babylonian captivity, but this is a code word in Peter's book. Um, He's going to call them exiles three times in the book of 1 Peter. And each time he's going to use the term exiles, he's meaning that this is not your home. That this world, that this culture, that that this you're not supposed to be at home here. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes. A couple of other things. He, He brings about this beautiful Trinitarian statement, right? You feel the concept of the Trinity all throughout the Bible, but the word Trinity is never used in Scripture. But look at verse 2. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is one of these examples where we see the affirmation that we serve one God in three persons. Indivisible and yet separate persons, but it is one God in three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three together, one God, but separate, unique individuals. And so we see this example here in this uh, Trinitarian phrase that Peter, Peter says, that you're the elect exiles, um, and you're elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. So let's spend a minute on those three passages. The foreknowledge of God the Father... And he says, elect exile. So let's just touch on this topic of man's sovereign, uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Right? Man's, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There are two sort of equal truths in Scripture that if you look at them 
they look like they should like clash. They shouldn't get along. If you, if you put them together, they don't really fit together. And that is this truth, that the Bible 100% affirms that you have free will, that you have autonomy, that I can't force you to listen to the sermon. I can't make you understand it. I can't. You are going to do exactly what you want to do. There's nothing I can do to change your heart or your mind or in any way cause you to do anything. And listen, this is true for God also. God respects you as an individual and gives you free will. It would not be love if you did not have an option, right? If you were forced to love God. That's why He put the opportunity for Adam and Eve to choose against Him in the garden, right? Everybody always says, why why even plant a tree? (laughs) Like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God could have just taken away sin and they would have never had the option to choose to love Him or to choose to reject Him. But because God gives you free will, you have a choice. You have the option to walk with Him or to not walk with Him. And every person in this room will choose one or the other. You will plot a course in your heart for human freedom. What you want to do, where you want to go, and the direction of your life. And there's nothing anybody can do to force you to yield to their will. It is always going to be your will. Down in the deepest recesses of your heart, you have a choice. And God 100% affirms and respects that. That's a beautiful truth in Scripture. At the same time, all right, Scripture presents a sovereign God who understands, knows, and decrees all things without being sinful at all. That is 100% sovereign and reigns over every ounce, every inch, every millimeter, every part of all the universe and beyond, God is 100% sovereign and in control. It is a dizzying concept that we have tried to figure out uh, forever. And when people try to figure out if you're uh, a person who is what they call uh, uh, for, you sort of lean on man's free will, uh, and then there are those who sort of highlight and lean on God's sovereignty as though those two things were separate and you have to choose one or the other. Listen, the Bible doesn't present that truth. And so you don't have to fall into a camp where you are all man's uh, responsibility, all self-will, all human responsibility, or all sovereignty, or all elect, or all foreknowledge. The, the Bible doesn't present that as two camps that you should join one or the other. Spurgeon put it best this way uh, in the quote from Stephen Lawson's book, The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He summarizes this by saying, Throughout his prolific ministry, Charles Spurgeon sought to maintain the important balance that the Scripture gives to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Perhaps no preacher ever held these two truths more carefully in balance. And when asked why or how he could reconcile the apparent contradiction between those two truths, Spurgeon replied, I have never had to reconcile friends. I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. 
He confessed, where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me, since I have given up my mind to believing them both. Spurgeon simply embraced divine sovereignty and human responsibility as clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. And to deny one would mean to rip pages out of your Bible. To deny the other and to affirm one over the other is to do what Scripture does not do. And so you have to hold them in balance. And so Peter is writing that these are elect. They were chosen. The great passage, Romans 8, 28 and 29, describes that God, according to His foreknowledge, elected people. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So election and man's will, two seemingly contradictory ideas that the Bible presents as both equally true. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. And we talk about sanctification a lot uh, in this church. I use that phrase a lot. And so I know some of our kids even know what sanctification is. If I were to ask a child what sanctification is, they, they describe that salvation has several parts. That God redeems us. There's a moment when you're born again. And that's the moment of redemption. There's a future moment when you will be glorified when your body will do away with this body of sin and you will be in glory and you'll be sinless and you'll be with the Father. And so we look forward to being saved. There's a moment we look backward when we were saved, when we chose to give our life to Christ and we were born again and redeemed. Those two moments um, describe two points of salvation, but there's a third and that's this long process of sanctification whereby the Spirit of God is changing you. And listen, you know this is a painful process because you either are sanctified willingly or unwillingly. God will use events and circumstances to sanctify you. Trials and difficulties and painful situations He will use because, listen, He is radically committed to forming Christ in you. He is radically committed to changing you to conform to the image of His Son. And you are either a willing party to that, meaning you wake up in Romans 12, you present your body as a willing offering that morning, and you say, I am yours, and this day is yours, and I'm going to read your word, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to put it into practice, and in my heart, I'm going to obey what you tell me to do, and I'm not going to stiff-arm your Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to put myself on the throne of my heart and call the shots for my own day. And as you daily do that, you're cooperating with God's process of sanctification. Now, it gets ugly when we don't cooperate, right? When we wake up and we say, I'm not going to read today, and I'm not going to pray today, and I'm not going to yield today. Today, I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots. I'm going to do my thing. And the longer you do your thing outside of the Lordship of Christ, the more you stray from His Lordship of your life, the the more you um, are not cooperating with Him in the process of sanctification. And then He uses more difficult means means like the natural consequences of your sin. You see, if I, if I willingly dethrone Jesus and put me on the throne of my life and I sin rebelliously and wickedly against the Lord, which I'm prone to do, I'm a person like anyone else, 
then I will experience the natural consequences for sin. And the natural consequences for your sin is death. And God will allow you to experience that. Why do you think David cried out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation? Because he had been walking away from the Lord in adultery and sinfulness. And for over a year, he had been walking away from the Lord until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And then he was broken. And he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have you ever lost joy? Have you ever walked through a period when you're just restless? When you can't find peace? When you're struggling and you're anxious and you're worried and you're fretting and you're, you're, you feel it in your body, the tension builds up and you get stress headaches and, and you're nervous and you're worried and, and you're your flesh starts to come out in in sinful ways. Listen, as you do that, the Lord will allow you to experience the natural, painful consequences of your sin. You're forgiven, but in His mercy, He allows you to experience the painful part of sanctification where you're not cooperating with Him. And so the Spirit is the architect of your process of sanctification leading you into places, trials, blessings, experiences, trying to keep you from sinning, always trying to lovingly, gently persuade you, hey, I'm right here. Let me, let me, let me help you. Let me, make the, let me give you guidance. Let me lead you. If you'll listen to me, I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. He's willingly, actively engaged in speaking to you every single day. If you'll just listen. If you'll just listen, He'll lead you in a good way. And if you don't listen, you'll stray from the path and you'll experience the natural painful consequences of your own sin. This is the process of sanctification. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is that idea of allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life. That daily He wears the crown and you submit to Him. You yield to Him. Your identity to Jesus is doulos, that of a servant, of of a loving servant who says, I will serve you and you are the king of my life, Jesus. This obedience is what Jesus calls his love language. If you love me, you will obey what I command. This is is how you say I love you to Jesus. It's not with goosebumps as you worship. It's not with smoke and lights and and running around with a banner. and, And it's not with wild emotional worship. Jesus said, that's nice. I like emotional worship. I'm not opposed to that, but I love obedience. And you can wave a banner and you can run up and down and you can sing repetitive phrases until you get goosebumps all over and you feel really close to Jesus and you can walk out in disobedience and He can say to you, I understand loud and clear that you don't love me. Because Jesus, His love language is obedience. That you will follow Him as the Lord of your life. And so Peter is reminding them, God the Father, the foreknowledge, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And lastly, what we're going to focus on in this passage is the sprinkling of His blood. The sprinkling of His blood. This is a, kind of a gruesome passage if you didn't, weren't familiar with the Bible. Um, anybody ever read Leviticus? Anybody ever gotten through the book of Leviticus? Right? You start there, and then you start to read things like verse chapter 14 where if you have, uh, a, you know, a, a, a 
bodily ailment or something's wrong with you that the priest is supposed to grab a, a bird and he's supposed to wring its neck and he's supposed to mix the blood in a bowl of water and then he's supposed to grab the water and the blood and he's going to like throw it at you a few times and sprinkle you clean. And there's all these kind of weird, gruesome passages in Leviticus that we don't really get, but, but they all find their fulfillment somewhere uh, in Jesus. And so he, Peter understands this, and it's not a, a weird thing, but when the Bible describes the sprinkling of blood, it describes your status before God, listen, as clean before Him. It describes your process, your status before God, as clean and holy before Him. Now, immediately, you should understand that you're not worthy, that you're not holy. Do you remember Jesus described the two men who went up to the temple to pray, and He said one was justified before God and one wasn't. Do you remember these two guys? One sat on the front row, and He looked up to heaven, and just real loudly said, Lord, I'm I'm so glad I'm who I am. I'm so glad that I give my money, and I'm very righteous, and I'm I'm not like that guy back there. He's praying this out loud in a boastful way that says, I'm so glad of who I am. And Jesus said there was a tax collector in the back, that just wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he was so broken over his sin, he just beat his breast, and he said, Father, forgive me a sinner. And this is the one who went home justified before God. See, God doesn't want you to beat yourself up over your sin. That's not the point of that parable. But He wants you to be honest with yourself about your sin. He wants you to be honest with yourself that sin... It's against His holiness. It's an act of your will that says, I'm going to do what I want to do so that I can be happy or fulfilled. That's always the lie of sin, is that if you do this against God, it'll make you happy. It'll add something to your life that you don't have. And God is saying, no, sin will never make you happy. And the longer you recognize that your sin keeps you from that, um, then you recognize that God's love for you is that He sprinkles you clean through the blood of Jesus. That He doesn't hold your sin against you any longer. That in Christ, 1 John 1, 9 is true, that if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. David prayed in Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you have a clear conscience today? Do you have a clear conscience? Is there something that you've committed? Is there something you're engaged in right now? A pattern of sinful behavior that keeps you from resting at night? Causes your mind to wander? That steals your peace? That you know is an act of disobedience against the revealed will of God? And you just keep plowing on through with that act of disobedience. Listen, Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to take your punishment that you deserved on Himself. By doing that, He has cleansed you from sin once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter's going to tell us in chapter 3. But He died for us to give us a clean conscience before God. And the righteousness of Jesus covers you like an umbrella or a robe so that when God sees you, 
He sees not your sinfulness any longer, but the righteousness of Christ that He has given you. He has imparted to you. Jesus has clothed you in righteousness that He deserved. And He took your cloak of sin on Himself. And as you walk in this world, you are clean, right? You are cleansed from sin if you have given your life to Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you of all your sins. But you can break your fellowship with God by sinning against Him. And even though that sin is forgiven, you will experience a strain in your relationship with God. Have you ever had a strained relationship with your husband or wife if you're married? It's a weird feeling. Uh, Yes, I see hands go up. Uh, Yeah, it's a weird feeling to have a strained relationship. But but once there's humility and reconciliation, um, that relationship can be better, right? Your making up with each other can be better than before the fight. And so in this process, uh, we see a similar thing that with God, if you've sinned against Him, he is waiting and calling you home. And that you can have a clear conscience today, believer, Christ follower. You can have a clear conscience again if you'll confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Well, that's what Peter describes in just two short verses. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for how rich and how deep and how impactful it is that in two small verses, there's so much more that we could have unpacked today. So we thank You, Lord, that You have a message for us even in two small verses like this. Would you help us each to identify what you're saying to us in this message today? And would you help us not to harden our hearts, but to respond to you in the way in which you're leading us? Maybe that's for repentance. Maybe that's for confession. Maybe it's that we should cooperate with you in the process of sanctification. Maybe that we should be more obedient. Maybe that we should uh, help our minds to understand your truth better. Maybe we need to, in some way, move today uh, to seek forgiveness, to ask forgiveness, to uh, be reconciled to you. Whatever it is that you're speaking to us about, pray that we would obey you today and that you would use your word to bear fruit. And just like In the opening illustration, the soil was broken up and the grass seeds were planted. And after a few weeks, grass began to grow where before it was barren. So we pray that today, as we've broken up the soil of our hearts and as your word has been placed, we pray that a few weeks from now we would begin to see evidence, evidence of new growth, of new life from the seed of your word that was planted today. In Jesus' name, amen.